sometimes the greatest blessings and experiences in life are things that you never see coming. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. 10,000 No's is a roadmap built by guests who have blazed trails, silenced critics, and overcome the odds by facing down their fears and transforming their failures into fuel. I don't care if you're young or old, healthy or sick, there is always an opportunity for growth. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome. I am psyched to be back on track with our weekly Friday release schedule. For those of you who have DM'd me about last week's conversation with Jessica Blank, thank you. So cool to hear how you're growing and learning from the show and all of the smart guests I'm fortunate enough to sit down with. Jessica's insights into story were really informative, so uh, very happy to see that that resonated. Um, just in general, I want to say thank you for all the feedbacks, the comments, the the DMs on Instagram, tweets, all that kind of stuff, emails. Uh, really amazing. We put a ton of work into this. I have an incredible team of interns now who have bought into this 10,000 No's vision, which um, is really gratifying that people, uh, it was recently hit up by somebody else who has been listening and kind of binging them and said, I'd love to get involved in some way. It's really cool. So I can't, uh, I can't stress that enough, how appreciative I am for that support and for you sharing this podcast with other people. Today, Jesse Bradley was a self-defined atheist from a family full of non-believers and mixed faiths as a kid. Dreamed of being a professional basketball player. That did not happen for him. He did, however, become a pro soccer player. Um, and he has a crazy story, which he shares with us, where he almost died when he was playing soccer in Zimbabwe. He was tutoring students. Um, I'm going to let him tell that story, but uh, really amazing the resilience he showed and how faith played a part in his story. And what he never imagined, though, as a kid was that he would end up as a pastor and leading others with his own strong faith. And we talk gratitude, encouragement, faith, and overcoming the hard knocks of life and growing as a result of the hard knocks. Um, now think about faith as you listen to Jesse's story. It doesn't need to be religious as his is, um, but this show is about overcoming adversity and turning things around. And Jesse's story is full of that. So as with all of these episodes, I really want you to think... How can you apply these concepts to your life rather than just being a passive listener? How can you take what Jesse in this instance is going through and apply it to yourself? It Maybe yours is, is not religious. Maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe it's a faith in your work ethic or a faith in your creativity or your ideas. Whatever it is, I believe it needs to be strengthened wherever it is. Even if it's strong, it could be stronger. Um, I'm speaking for myself when I say that, and uh, and I'm speaking to you. So here he is, Jesse Bradley. 
I currently live in Seattle, Matthew. Really enjoy it here. I've been here three years. Before that, I lived in California for over 10. So we said goodbye to the sunshine for about six months a year of the year, but uh, we've really enjoyed it here. My whole family, we have four kids, and I'm so grateful for my wife, Lori. And the kids have enjoyed our neighborhood, their schools, uh, sports teams, church, so many new friends. When you make a transition with the bigger family, it's a step of faith, but uh, we felt at home up in Seattle. And then, you know, I grew up in Minnesota, and this is somewhat similar. As far as winters go, it's even more mild. But I came up here to be a pastor. And, you know, growing up, I never expected to be a pastor. I would say that sometimes the greatest blessings and experiences in life are things that you never see coming and didn't plan. But I've been serving here now for three years, and I'm in a church also connected around the city. And that's one thing I love about being here in Seattle is that the relationships I built around the city, there's a sense of unity. I think, unfortunately, with churches, sometimes people are uh, trapped in their own denomination or even in their local church, and there's no connection beyond. They don't look beyond the walls of the church. And I love being connected in the community with a wide range of people and then pastors around Seattle. And there's an incredible unity that's happening here. And I wake up every day energized. I Coffee and the Seahawks are two things, you know, coming into Seattle that stood out. And I don't drink coffee. Seahawks, I'm there. But uh, as far as coffee goes, and that buzz in the morning, I feel like I have that. I wake up with that every day. My staff jokes around, like, don't even drink coffee because you already have too many ideas and too much energy and too much vision. We don't need more. But uh, Seattle's been a great place. And there's seasons in your life where you just feel like you're doing the right thing. You're in the right spot. And it's so fulfilling. And that's where I feel like I am right now. That's great. That's great. Well, you know, uh, you said something about, how you know, you don't have... Sometimes you don't know what the plan is for you and you end up like you did not see yourself um, becoming a pastor. And I think people can hear that and go, oh, come on, man. That's what everybody says. This is, you know, you're <laughs> going to try to. But but you really had what, what I know or what I've heard is that growing up, you actually considered yourself an atheist for a while. Is that could you tell us a little bit about kind of, you know, religion and sports in your life as you were growing up? Yeah, my parents had an experience that wasn't good as far as church goes and what they saw at home and in different settings. And because of that hypocrisy and that deadness, they shielded me from anything having to do with faith. And I totally understand that. You know, a lot of people have deep scars when it comes to experiences regarding church or religion or God. And there's a lot of disappointment there. Now, a lot of times it's what they've seen through people who say they're following God. But because of their experiences, they thought it was best to kind of keep me out of that realm. And I was you know, going through life, uh, wasn't on my radar, wasn't an interest, something I was seeking out. My parents got divorced when I was seven. And I would say at that time, that was so brutal because anyone, their parents are their two pillars in life. And when suddenly those pillars are shaken and then family's not together anymore, there's a huge sense of loss and it hits you in different stages of your life. But I pretty much turned to sports, turned to doing well in school and friends. And those were my three big things. You know, I always had lots of friends, love sports, and then academically tried to really push myself. 
going through high school then uh, and off to college. I went to Dartmouth College on the East Coast, and I know both of us, East Coast and playing sports. But when I got there, I took a class, Introduction to World Religions, and I wasn't looking for God or a spiritual connection. I was simply taking an academic class. The professor wasn't a Christian either, and we were looking at all the different religions in the world. That was fascinating. It was the first time I ever studied to look at what's similar, what's different. And the Gospel of John was assigned. Lots of different religious texts were assigned. But the Gospel of John, when I read it, it felt different than any book I'd read before. And in particular, I had never studied Jesus's life. And I never looked at his love, his teachings, his miracles. And it caught my attention. I wasn't ready to follow him. I was still kind of pushing away uh, kind of the Heisman, if you picture that statue. Yeah. That, was, that was my posture with God. I wasn't ready. It was all new. I was trying to take in information and really kicking the tires because well, what was it about? What was it you were pushing away from or why do you think you were pushing away? Just kind of like embarrassed, like I'm not a religion guy or, or I'm an athlete. What, what do you think it was? Great question. Uh, a few things. One is I didn't know Christians growing up and this was the first time I could talk to Christians and watch their lives. And I wanted to see if there was something real or something different in there. Also, I probably had hundreds of questions. I mean, if I'm going to dive in or follow or really believe and it's genuine, then I can't fake it. And it can't just be something that looks good. Like I've got to kick the tires hard. And that's what I was doing. And then there's probably deep down a part of me where I've always been, you know, in my life before that self-reliant perseverance in a sense of uh, human only. And I was calling the shots. I had the steering wheel. And that's a huge step to say, okay, I'm going to believe that there's a God who's good, who knows what's best for me, and I'm going to trust him enough to really follow him, not just lip service or double life or play games. And, you know, that kind of decision, I wasn't ready to just say yes instantly. It's kind of like with marriage, Lori and I, we dated for a while. We got to know each other for a while before that commitment came. And that's what I was wrestling through. And a lot of people, when they make that decision later in life, they know the exact day and time, but I really didn't. It was something where end of my freshman year, I was still saying no. And then when I came back sophomore year, a couple of the Christians asked, you know, okay, what do you think at this point? And something was different inside. And I just knew it's kind of like when you lay out all the evidence on a table and you're trying to figure out which way do I land? Like, is Jesus risen? Can I trust him? Has he overcome death or is this just a hoax and a bunch of man-made stuff? Looking at all the evidence, it got to the point where it would take more faith to reject it than to believe it. And the dissonance for me that had been there was disappearing. And more and more, it was clear that uh, Jesus is good and he is who he says he is. And when I read about him, even though there's a lot of tainted versions from people who are following Jesus. When I look to Jesus, that's someone that I don't have to be ashamed about. And I could say, yes, I want to trust him fully. And that was sophomore year and biggest decision of my life. You know, it's not about feelings, but I will say that when I made that decision, there was an emptiness that had been there. And I couldn't figure out why in my life at that point, if I was going to such a good school and getting good grades and had friends and fraternity and sports, we just won you know, the Ivy League championship and individual honors and all this stuff that I thought 
would lead to that ultimate success. I couldn't figure out why there was still some emptiness there. And I'm just being honest, when I put my trust in Jesus, that deepest spot was satisfied. And it has been, although I've been through continued challenges in life, really, really stretching uh, to the core and testing and, uh, and overwhelmed at times in life. But that deepest spot of knowing that uh, God loves me, it's a security. And I have a relationship with God that can't be taken away or shaken. And it's eternal. That security right there. I, it was like I had a song inside of me, a new song walking around campus. I had a song inside of me. And I'm not a singer. I'm not musical. But something in the deepest place had changed. And I think we're built for a relationship. And that new relationship with God, uh, that's what made the difference uh, yeah. for me. Yeah. And, and what what do you say to people like, I don't know if you've ever seen the that documentary. Um, I think it was Bill Maher, uh, Religious. And it's kind of like he basically goes around and... and you know, it was interesting. I, I kind of appreciated it on one hand that he's trying to he's trying to um, go in and 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 pull things out of religion, and he's he's kind of, I think, uh, poking holes in the hypocrisy of religions of all different religions. But I think he ended up kind of lessening its effect because I don't know that he gave the argument fully for someone of faith, like he made everybody look like a kook who had faith. <laughs> um, but, but, but how do you, you know, like what, what, how do you kind of, um, respond to someone who goes like, yeah, that's just a fairy tale, man. You're just, you're doing that because you're afraid, you're afraid of death. And so you're creating this thing that's going to make you feel comfortable while you're here. Do you try to, uh, convince someone of your beliefs or do you just say, all right, well, you know, to each his own. You you believe that. This is what I believe. And I don't have to I don't have to sway you. I just have to, you know, hopefully by the way I live. And if you see that I'm I'm, you know, satisfied with my life, maybe you'll check out what I'm doing or not. And that's that that is what it is. Like how do you how do you kind of approach that? If you're ever in that position, maybe you're not. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think with Bill starting there, he's obviously intelligent, interesting, likes to stir it up. It would be fun to have a conversation with him. Uh, but overall, I think there's a lot of people who have those thoughts and the questions he asks and what the holes he tries to find. It's what a lot of people are thinking. And I think honest, humble conversations are so positive. I think in our country right now, being able to disagree and have differences, but still love each other. That's something we need to enter into because whether it's political or spiritual, it's important that we understand each other. We value each other, but at the same time, we can go deep and still respect each other with the differences. And I would never want to, I don't think you can force anyone, pressure anyone. I would not want to be weird in any way. I mean, I feel honored if someone even feels comfortable or safe bringing up the topic of spiritual things or faith, because that's a deeply personal uh, place for a lot of people. And also a lot of people have scars and they have uh, maybe heard some things and they might have some misperceptions and there's no way to get that cleared up or healing unless you put things on the table and talk about them. But overall in my family, we have a wide range of different beliefs and that could be agnostic, atheist. There's a lot of my family that is Catholic, I would say, but not practicing a few that are practicing Jewish in my family. There's a rabbi. I was able to officiate my sister's wedding this last weekend in Houston. And it was such a great time. 
and so many different people in terms of their faith. I was talking with, you know, my, my dad, stepdad, but I call him my dad. We're so close. His sister's married to a rabbi in California, and we have lots of good conversations. And I think it's important that we really love each other. And no matter what we believe, no one's better than one other person or um, looking down on anyone. We're all on this journey and we all have that faith journey together. But yet at the same time, intellectually, we've got to be honest about what are the differences and what is in common. When I took that class back at Dartmouth, I would say that in terms of some commonalities, a lot of religions have a book, a text, a sacred text, also some of the morals and even things like, you know, treat other people like you want to be treated, love your neighbor as you love yourself. There's common threads in a lot of different religions. But at the same time, there's real contrasts. Like when you think about God, is God a force or is God personal? Well, obviously, you know, I think he's very personal. And then also, is there one God? Is there millions of gods? Or uh, how would you view that? When it comes to Jesus, I think C.S. Lewis said, and I think he says it well, when someone claims to be the, the son of God, whether it's David Koresh or Jesus, you have some choices, either Lord, liar, or lunatic, but you can't just say he's a nice person. And yeah, I remember reading that in, uh, what was it? Mere Christianity I read in college. And that's what he said. Like they're either, they're either, what does he say? Like crazy as an egg or something? He said something about like that. Yeah. That's right. Very yeah, funny. The level yeah. Of a, that's right. An egg. Yeah. And, uh, and those kind of paradigms can help you think through it because all of us are trying to sort through who is God? Does God love me? Can I be forgiven if God's perfect? And then how do I experience that forgiveness? And what stood out to me about Christianity, what really caught my eye is that in a lot of religions, it's earning, it's trying to keep laws, and it's trying to, in essence, climb a ladder or be good enough, achieve, uh, check enough boxes to then hopefully God approves and loves us in the end. And I think that's a false dichotomy, ultimately, that in Christianity, it's grace. It's an undeserved gift. And we're the recipients of love and forgiveness. God loves and pursues us before we ever respond to him. And ultimately, too, we're not making God in our image. I think God makes us in his image. And we're trying to figure out how has God revealed himself. And what's popular today is for a lot of people to cut and paste and say, you know, I want that. I don't want that. I'll take a little bit of this. I don't want that. But we've got to be careful when we do that, uh, that we're not me-centered and we're not telling God who he is rather than looking at what he's revealed. And as I tried to come to it openly and honestly and didn't have a religious background uh, and looking at Jesus, I thought, okay, I've got to look at who he says he is and what he's revealed, not just what I want him to be or think he should do and say. And there is tension there. And how do you wrestle through that? But even though it's the scariest thing, I think, in some ways in the world to say, I'm going to trust this God and I'm going to let him have the steering wheel in my life. That can be the scariest, but that's where the most freedom and joy is. And that's the irony and kind of the paradox with faith as well. Yeah. Well, let me let me take you. Thank you for, for that. And let me take you back a little to before you had found Christianity uh, when you were growing up, just... Uh, with sports, you ended up playing pro soccer. Uh, you played soccer at Dartmouth. You played pro. I want to get into your experience in Zimbabwe and um, what happened to you there. But one of the things in keeping with 
10,000 no's and the, and the theme here of resilience and um, perseverance is you said that your your first love was not soccer growing up. It was actually basketball. So I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about how it came about that you went further in soccer than you did in basketball and kind of how you, what your mindset was that allowed you to make that shift. Yeah, that's a great question. I would say with uh, sports overall, we grew up on the University of Minnesota campus and I would go to those games with my parents at age three. I saw, you know, the basketball team, the hockey team, football team. And I told my parents, this is what I want to do when I grow up. I knew it so clearly, the passion, the energy around sports. And then watching, it was the Golden Gophers, basketball, Kevin McHale. I mean, it was back in the day. But I would start practicing, playing all the time. I got a Nerf hoop, and I would be both teams. My parents would say, well, who won? You know, it was me again. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I'd be in my room, and it would be 120 to 118, and just, you know, back and forth and scoring. And those were the dreams of uh, playing in the NBA. There were no Timberwolves at the time. Went to see Milwaukee Bucks play. You know, toured that stadium. Picked up every piece of tape or towel or anything I could find. I mean, it was just so close to my heart. And as I was, uh, you know, doing well in basketball, but then I remember in sixth grade, it was a parent of one of my friends. And he said, so what do you think, you know, your basketball is going to look like as you grow up? And I said, well, NBA is my dream. And he said, well, if you crunch the numbers, do you know how many people actually make the NBA? Do you know what the percentages are? And I obviously that had not entered into my dream. And uh, I said, no, but I I think I'm going to make it. He says, well, you know, how tall are you going to be? I was like, well, six, one, six, two. How do you think your vertical is? How quick are you? You know, it was that kind of conversation. And it was like, that was the first taste of reality or dose of reality that, yeah, I'm probably not going to make the NBA. And so I was able to play in high school and I think my about 20 points a game and stuff. But as I was uh, playing basketball, there was a, coach and a soccer coach that was outstanding. His name was Buzz Lagos. He's kind of a legend in Minnesota, but he saw me playing basketball and they needed a goalkeeper in soccer. And he said, Hey, how'd you like to try out? He trained me. Wait, had you never played soccer before that? I hadn't played goalkeeper until I was uh, 12 years old. And he uh, just thought that transition from basketball to soccer would be one that would flow. And that's how it is in life with no's. I think when the door closes, someone sees something in you or a talent or an ability and comes alongside, enters the picture. It's not on your radar. And that's who Buzz Lagos was for me. And we started to you know, practice extra before, after, talk about the game. And with goalkeeping, I could tell I was picking it up. I was understanding the game. And then I played with so many outstanding players. We had a nucleus. If if you're in youth sports or you're listening to this or you're a parent, I mean, if you can get around other players who love the game, who are playing it the right way, and then a coach who understands the game, bring in insights and passion. I mean, that's fertile ground for development. And we had guys on my high school team, one played in the World Cup, uh, Tony Sana and and Manny Lagos, uh, Amos McGee. Those are guys who now run, you know, the Minnesota team in the MLS. And we had so many guys play college soccer and it came out of that healthy environment. We won the high school championship twice. You know, that was a thrill in high school playing in the Metrodome, 6,000 people. And I remember being so scared when we played my junior year and I was a goalkeeper and I almost had an attitude like I didn't want the ball to come to me. And fortunately, we still won, but I had a terrible game. And 
that was another one of those wake up calls. And what do you learn from failure? And I knew if I went back my senior year, like I can't have the same mindset and attitude. We've got to go after this thing and, uh, and, and be aggressive and be ready and not scared of the moment. And we ended up winning in a shootout. And uh, it was a huge celebration. It really kind of catapulted me towards college soccer with some momentum. And I was able to play at Dartmouth where the coach is Bobby Clark and he's a legend in Scotland. He was just inducted into the hall of fame at Aberdeen, the football club there. And he was a coach for New Zealand national team, Africa. He just retired coaching at Notre Dame. They won a national championship, but again, same theme, incredible guys to play with and a coach that understood, you know, like the next three levels of the game. And he was a goalkeeper as well. And, and so, you know, just soaking up, that whole experience, uh, we would talk on the phone and he just felt like a good friend. Whereas other coaches in terms of recruiting would just ask, you know, what are your SATs? What's your GPA? There was a bond there. And I think the best stuff in life happens through relationships and healthy relationships. And he was a guy I just wanted to spend four years with and learn from and be around. And uh, we won the Ivy League title my freshman year and Dartmouth hadn't won it in like 25 years. Now there's been incredible success. Uh, sustained and in a standout program, you know, usually in top 25 and winning the Ivy league now, but we felt like kind of pioneers and breaking through and uh, that team, we continue to stay close. Uh, Andrew shoe was on that team, you know, oh, who yeah, yeah. is an actor and uh, it's fun. I bumped into him. His son plays college soccer now. So we were watching his son at a Huskies game here recently. Also Jamie, my coach in college, his son is the coach at University of Washington. So it feels like a family when you have a team like that and not only doing well on the field, but off the field. And coach would always say the we things, doing the we things well and emphasizing that. Those kind of themes, there's so many truths in sports that carry over into life. And I know you have those similar experiences on the East Coast and play in sports, uh, but in college, you really eat drink and sleep sports and you you dive in with everything you have and it stretches you and uh and sometimes uh you can kind of question yourself like am i going to be able to compete at this level and it's it's fun to uh kind of be learning as um the games you know continue to, to happen and i would say that you know at the same time my spiritual life is taking off so as a goalkeeper, there's so much pressure on a soccer goalkeeper and I would be a perfectionist and I would play mind games. And I found that as my faith entered the picture, even through prayer, I was able to enjoy it more and relax and kind of keep it perspective too. Yeah. And, wh- and what about, you know, you said something about relationships being so important and, and we things, um, what about just jumping back a little bit to your parents' divorce when you were seven, like, how did that, it sounded like before that there must've been something naturally in your DNA, some kind of drive. You were going to games when you were three, you were playing against yourself. You were out there all night, you know, and then, and then this big, you know, uh, breakup happens and you're only seven. And how did that like, how did you take that and bounce back from that? And and you, it sounds like you ended up uh, still doing well in school. Obviously, you went to Dartmouth. They did well with sports. Was there kind of like a 
a hit that you took or was there anything you learned about yourself as that young kid that, that you learned from, you know, from the breakup? Because I'm just thinking of, you know, kids that young. I, I have two kids. I've gotten at this point, they're 11 and eight. And I think, you know, it, it's interesting to hear you say you, you were an atheist as a kid. You, you know, you didn't didn't believe in God. Now you're a pastor. You um, relationships, you, you count so uh, heavy and and the biggest one in your life that broke up. It's just, it's mm. just fascinating to me to hear how you, you know, how it was you put it in your mind and were able to uh, not let it break you. Yeah, I was hurting, but I didn't know how to identify the pain or talk about it. And then I went to some counselors and I entered in to that and tried to to share those things. What was interesting is that I felt like the counselors were helpful in drawing some of that out, but there was no real sustaining life change. And in a lot of ways, my heart didn't change. Uh, let me be a little more specific. You know, when my parents were divorced, my dad left and he moved out of state and I didn't see him very often. I carried around resentment because I felt like my dad didn't care much about me and took off. And I noticed a lot of people that can relate to that experience in America with divorce or only being with one parent primarily. Well, I would go to counselors and I would share what I'm seeing and feeling and thinking. And I think that is a start, but there was no real lasting healing because uh, as they could analyze it and I could talk about it, but the comfort never came. And that, you know, I think sports was a nice distraction and kind of a pure joy and something that I always look forward to. And when you're going through a really tough time, you look for, okay, what in my life right now is, uh, you know, a place where I don't have to think about these other things, a place where I can just enjoy the experience. Yeah, it's like an escape. Right it was like an escape for you in a way. It was yeah. an escape and, and it yeah. played an important role because, you know, as a kid, you need those distractions and you need things to dive into because if you're bored, it can, it can go downhill fast. But the things that started to change, and this will tie back into faith for a minute, but when I realized that God forgave me of all my sins and I really, you know, received that grace, now looking at my dad, there's no way I was going to hold on to any kind of grudge or bitterness or any sense of revenge. And I was still angry through high school at him. And I even told him that I hadn't seen him in a long time. But when I um, received forgiveness from God, now I told my dad, I just want to have as good a relationship as possible. And I'm not bitter about anything in the past. And it was sincere. And then we started to get closer and it was gradual over the years. But there was so much healing there because that deep work in my heart of uh, forgiveness and love now that's what filled filled my heart and you can't fake that but when it happens that changes so much and i also think that my natural bent in life is perseverance and if things are difficult you just keep going and you drive and it was a big step for me to open it up and talk to some counselors but I was thinking it's kind of a coping mechanism that just do better in school, do better with sports, you know, um, have good relationships. And that's how I would cope is do better in everything. And that is positive to a large degree. But I, I think I never knew the kind of perseverance that went beyond just what I brought. Like it is important to persevere and, and it's so positive. 
but I never knew how to kind of tap into anything beyond me. And, and, you know, now when that opened up, it was like, uh, there's healthy ways to cope that go beyond just my initial reactions and thoughts and what I can try to pull off, you know, on my own. And I think when that alignment happens where, you know, from heaven, you're connected and then, with other people and then doing what you're made to do. And then your heart can have that kind of healing. That's when the healthiest perseverance happens, not just like a white knuckle and um, focus harder and put more pressure on myself kind of perseverance. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, you're, you're actually leading right to where I was hoping to go next, which was you graduate Dartmouth and you end up playing pro soccer and you, and you go to Zimbabwe if you want. I don't know if we need to get into how you chose Zimbabwe, but that might be interesting. But what I what I would love to talk about, because you're talking about uh, the difference between relying on yourself to grind through something versus giving yourself over um, and, and you know, acknowledging your powerlessness. Talk to tell everybody, the, you know, what happened to you toward the end of your stay there and when you came back home. Uh, walk us through that experience, if you could. Yeah, I would say the experience in Africa and then my parents' divorce would be the two most difficult things I've been through. In Africa, I didn't see it coming, and it kind of went from one of the highest highs in life to the lowest of lows. And basically, I had the opportunity to go to England and play or go to Africa. Africa stood out to me because of all the needs there and such a new experience. And to be able to play soccer there, we were tutoring students and then dive in and play with the team and professional soccer. It was like a dream come true in a lot of ways. Now, about four months into the experience, I was taking a prescribed drug to prevent malaria and the drug built up toxic levels in my system. The doctors in Zimbabwe didn't know what it was. They sent me home because my health was declining so rapidly and I barely made it home. But then I was also supposed to take the drug for another month after I came home. We ended up paying out of pocket to a specialist at Stanford who listed like 10 things that could be. And one of them was a reaction and side effects of the malaria medication called Larium, which is a real potent and dangerous drug. And when he said that, I knew internally and just praying about it, that that's what it was. And I had to stop taking the drug. The doctors told me, you know, don't stop taking the drugs. You can't get malaria on top of this. But I stopped taking the drug a month early. That, that saved my life. Uh, but in any case, here's the symptoms uh, from headaches, massive migraines that I'd never had in my life, to sweats, chills, double vision, uh, extreme fatigue, uh, then all these emotional changes. I had been even keel before that. And these were emotional experiences that come on like waves and, and storms where massive depression would just hit on a given day. Even suicidal thoughts would start flying into my mind. I'm like, where are these coming from? And anxiety uh, would spike panic attacks and all this from the drug. And then physically, it affected my heart where Atrial flutter is an abnormality that started to happen. Tachycardia, which is a term that means a racing heartbeat. The drug inhibits the inhibitors in my heart, so I can't regulate my heartbeat. And my heart would start beating 160 beats a minute and, and take off and skipping beats and murmur. And, 
it was, uh, I was fighting for my life for a year. And that's why I say if I took another month of this drug, I probably wouldn't have made it. And it took about five, 10 years to recover. How old were you when, when you came back from Zimbabwe? I was just in my early 20s. So it was, you know, a year after college and, uh, and I had dreams of playing till I was 40 because goalkeepers can play for a very long time. But uh, that ended my career. And uh, like I say, it took me close to 10 years to really uh, feel like uh, physically I probably got 90% back. And even the emotional adjustments, it was so uh, strange. I gotta tell you, Matthew, it's like, if you know your body and athletes tend to know their bodies, you know, actors very aware. And it's, it was almost like having a whole new body, a body that didn't work, a mind and emotions that were spinning out of control. And it's like, how do I get comfortable? I felt like everything was stripped away at the same time. Now I was a new Christian, so I had that faith, but I was not deep in my faith. And my identity was wrapped up in soccer and achievement and being healthy, having a career, you know, finance, having money, you know, just different things like that, where now I have to move back into my parents' basement. I'm on a little baby monitor that they're listening through the night each night to see like, am I doing okay? Am I breathing okay? Am I, is my heart okay? I mean, my heart would physically be in so much pain and it was so humbling. I didn't have friends around at that point. Uh, didn't really have a church to go to. I mean, it was like all the things, the success that I had before that were taken away. It felt like instantly. And I was wrestling with who am I and what do I still have left? And that's where I, it hit me. Okay. God's still here. And I started to go deeper with God and my identity shifted from all those things, whether it was my appearance or my achievements, my resume, or, you know, the things I'm doing, the things I can do well, what people think of me, it, all that shifted from those things, which can change to God and his love, which doesn't change, which can't change. And the security there. Now I wouldn't want anyone to go through this stuff, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's beyond what I can describe how, how difficult it was, but at the same time, some good things came out of it. And that's where I say God's grace is evident in those storms. And I never expect to be a pastor kind of going back to where we started in our time together. That's why I never expect to be a pastor. God started to slowly direct me towards that. Now I was grieving on so many levels and who likes to grieve and, but I was missing soccer. I was missing my health. I had to chart for a year. Okay. I'm able to walk 10 minutes. I'm able to walk 15 minutes, had to wear a heart monitor. Uh, it, it was a gradual process. I had to relearn how to drive because the stimulation would affect me so much when I was driving that my heart would start racing and I just have to pull over. And I had to wait so many months before I could even get behind the wheel again. And, uh, you know, again, double vision, my body, I was a professional athlete and now I don't know if I'm going to recover because the doctors don't know. And some people that had that drug died, some were more in like a, vegetative state and some of them took their own lives and there was no guarantees. Would I even live a year? Would I get any of that back? And I realized if I'm in my right mind, if I'm able to help anybody or do anything, it'll be the grace of God. Cause I can't will this. I can't perform it. I can't control it. I can't yeah. fake it, manufacture it. Like I'm, I need God's help. And sometimes, you know, personally for me, I would say, I grow the most when I have that real sense of need 
and uh, uh, what and and that's where I say it's not a placebo effect. Do we have real needs? Yes, I think we have a deep need for a God who loves us. I think we have we we know we have that longing for heaven and all those things. I think those desires are good and it's not a placebo. It's not a, a fake, but at the same time, uh, being sincere is not enough. It's got to be true and it's got to be real. And I was thinking there's an old story of guys in the Midwest, you know, where I grew up and I think it's Michigan state and they thought they could jump out of their dorm and the snow would catch them because the snow was so high. Well, they just went right through and hit the ground and broke their legs. But, uh, you know, they were sincere and they wanted the snow to catch them, but the snow can't hold them. And I think when it comes to faith, it's like, there's a lot of stuff out there, but I'm not convinced everything can can hold us. And, uh, and that's where I think it's God's love, but stay in truth. And there was a lot of hard truth that I had to face. And, uh, it's humbling when you face hard truth, but the hard truth was that emotionally, I didn't know how to get to that time. Physically, I needed so much healing spiritually. My relationship with God was shallow at that time. You know, I didn't know how to talk to him. My prayer looked more intellectual and theological and trying to impress God versus just being real and deep. And there was a lot of truth I had to face, but and I did like this. The, and did this experience end up turning you toward, this is when you decided to become a pastor out of this kind of uh, helplessness in a way? Yeah. Out of a deep suffering. I, I think that uh, the truth it's like the truth hurts initially. There's a phrase like, ouch, that helps. And uh, the truth hurts, but then that's when growth happens. And there's another phrase that, you know, the revealing happens before the healing. And without the revealing, there's no healing. And this was such a wake-up call. There's some things in life you can kind of go through and add enough good stuff to kind of numb the pain or, you know, uh, find your way through, navigate through a difficult season. But this is one where it was like everything in my life stopped and I was staring at it. And it's like, how do you eat an elephant? Where do you even start? And I was at a point where I know I needed help and it had to be real help. It, it couldn't just be a Hallmark card kind of help or a nice saying, or it, I had to, um, to, to test it in that sense. And, uh, and, and then making it through, times like that, uh, that's when, you know, I'm not just sharing because, Oh, I think it might sound good. Like this is what got me through life when I couldn't make it. And, uh, I think it's also the same thing that helps me in the greatest joys too. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a both and for sure. But as far as faith goes, you know what I started to do after a year as I had some health, I started to volunteer. And what I would say for anybody, if there's a career shift or a transition, is to start you know, what looks good, what looks interesting, start there. And even if it's only a few hours a week, I started to volunteer with junior high. Now, they had tons of energy. I was overwhelmed at times. I didn't think this is going to be the long-term position, but it gave me a taste. And I started to get some encouragement. I started to discover what my gifts were and my talents were. And out of that, I had an opportunity to do a volunteer internship for a couple hours a week. And then from that, another internship down in Oakland. And I kept learning more and soaking it up. And I think eventually, as if anyone's making that transition, you know, for me, it was, it was prayerful, uh, but also 
it was gradual and it can be something that you do on the side and it keeps growing and it keeps growing. And then pretty soon you make the key decision, is this what I'm doing full time? And I went off to school, graduate school in, in Texas, knowing that because I never read the Bible growing up, four years of studying the Bible would be pretty important. And also that would give my body physically four more years to continue to recover as school wouldn't be as demanding as, as working. And I was, I was physically struggling through those four years. One guy in seminary, he, his nickname for me was Limp Biscuit because uh, <laughs> I was just, you know, I mean, popular then, but also that was, uh, I was just battling uh, health-wise too. And, and so it wasn't, uh, oh, this is wonderful. I'll just go into ministry and be a pastor. It was, uh, and at the same time, I'll add this piece too. I mentioned in my faith, it's kind of, you know, Baskin Robbins, 31 flavors in my family and going to seminary, overcoming some no's, it was not popular in my family. And in some ways it might look like, uh, for some people, like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? Is it going to be intelligent enough? Are you throwing away your education? Like, don't you realize what life as a pastor is like, and it doesn't have to be your vocation. And, you know, just sorting through all that, and as I did my internships in a certain denomination, people in that denomination didn't like it that I went to a seminary that was all denominations. There was a lot of pressure and pushback, like, no, you're doing the wrong thing. You've got to go to our denomination seminary. And I, so I didn't have, you know, like family cheered me on. I didn't have the, the only mentors I had at that point. They didn't think it was a good idea. And that can be an extremely difficult thing, but it can also be the very best thing because I would say if God's really in it, it's like those birthday candles. That it doesn't matter how many times people are trying to blow the candle out. When it's genuine and real and good, that light, that candle comes back on. And I was going off to seminary knowing that God was leading me. And it wasn't because anyone was wanting me to do it or I wasn't pleasing anybody. It was just a sense of this is a way I, I could reach out and help people in such an important area of life, I think, that gets overlooked or there's a lot of misunderstandings. And also it's what changed me in college. And so I could reach out to other people who have similar questions and maybe don't have any place to go or ask them. I became a college pastor at University of Iowa for over six years. And there's so many people just in the Midwest and around the nation that grew up and their taste of faith was negative or weird. And they don't really have anyone or they don't know who to go to or ask some questions, just talk about it or be honest about their doubts and their fears and what doesn't seem to make sense or line up or something damaging they went through. And uh, my heart goes out. I love connecting with those kind of people because that was me. And, um, and I just love to have those conversations. Yeah. Well, you, well, you, you talk about, um, you know, following, your own intuition versus what other people wanted for you. And um, one of the things I, I know you had a choice at, at, a, at a certain point, be, when you decided to go where you are now in Seattle, you had another choice, which was to go to Hershey, Pennsylvania, to a bigger church that would have been kind of better, a better career move. And you, you chose to go to Seattle. And my question was, um, you, you know, what is it that you follow when making these big decisions? Uh, and I kind of have a follow-up question to this, but what is it that you 
you know, you said like some of your advisors were saying go to Hershey, you, you know, family members are saying go to Hershey and you chose to go to Seattle. What, what went into that and what goes into those big decisions for you? Yeah, thank you. That's really uh, appreciate being able to share about that. At Hershey, I would have had incredible chocolate nonstop too. So that was just another <laughs> yeah, that's plus. a nice benefit. Yeah. yeah, but Hershey was a church where it was a mega church. And then uh, sorting through those options, what I tend to do is I'm analytical. So I like a list of pros and cons and try to weigh those out and get them on paper and just make sure if I put everything down, what does it look like? So I start there. I do like to talk to different people and get their insights from their perspective and, and sort that out. A big factor for me, was my family and uh, you know what's best in terms of each decision like when we went to California Northern California we were able to be close to my parents with our kids being so young it was such a, a sweet time together you know so that was another just big factor in the different steps but ultimately here's what drives it for me here's my North Star is uh, faithfulness to God Everyone has their own view of what is success in life. And some people, it's money, it's how they feel inside, or it's, uh, you know, the climbing the ladder in a certain promotion, a certain position they might attain to. And all those things, uh, yeah, we all notice all those things, but ultimately what drives you. And in praying about it, it it's not always to go to the bigger church or the the typical career path. And what I'd say is, you know, you look at uh, even Jesus as one example, it's like he wasn't always running to the next bigger thing. And uh, he poured his life into three and 12 uh, people. But uh, I'd say there's a lot of freedom in that. But at the same time, it's a deep wrestling. And I don't think for anyone, we're just like, oh, yeah, what does God want? Oh, yeah, great. Okay, I'll take that too. I mean, Jesus wrestled with the Father and said, all right, all right, going in terms of going to the cross, is there any other way? Uh, I'll drink this cup of suffering, but is there any other way? And sometimes in our life, now going to Seattle wasn't an example of that suffering, but sometimes in our life, the very best thing to do is to lay down our lives or to suffer. Like in marriage, if you're going to have a good marriage, I think it's a lot of sacrifice. If you're going to have a impact in your community, you give up a lot of time and energy. Now, the irony is you find the greatest joy there too, but we live in a culture where it's me first, what feels good for me right now, me centered. And I think that's a faulty way to approach those big decisions in life, because I think what's ultimately most fulfilling is not the instant gratification right now, but it's that combination of I'm following God by faith, some decisions are clearer than others. Some are really obvious. Some are, I can't tell God, I'm going to go this direction. Help me redirect me if I'm off base. But as best as I can tell, I'm wanting to be faithful to God and then help other people and then use my gifts. And when that combination is lined up, it's not so much about, okay, the number in a church or, you know, the reputation or the other kind of false success measures. Uh, I would say this is kind of a tangent, but a lot of times in church world, what people look at are, you know, what's the attendance? How are we doing with the budget? Are most people pretty happy? And I think that that can lead a lot of churches into trouble where I think what should be looked at is the health, the relationships, the lives that are being changed and yeah. those stories. So our measures of success in life are huge. Like what are we really going for? 
and what I've seen in my life is that when I um, pray, when I listen, in addition to doing all the conversations and the pros and cons, but when I can say, God, I think this is what you want, and I enter into that, I've never had regret. And that that might mean some detours are not the obvious answer that other people are expecting, you know, in terms of the decision, but that's okay. We're going to be surprised uh, along the way. And there'll be mid-course redirections too. But that's what drives yeah. it for me ultimately. Well, you kind of, it's funny, you kind of have uh, answered my next questions and, and I'm actually going to read them to you because they were you kind of really answered all of them. I was going to say, how do you make a, a big move like from city to city and not feel like your life is falling apart? Did you doubt it? Did mm-hmm. you ever feel like you were throwing everything you built away? How, uh, how were you surprised? Did anything materialize that you never could have imagined before that move? Yeah. Um, and it sounds she, like all of that is, is maybe right. you, you went through all of that in a way. Yeah. And one factor that I didn't mention, but that was, extremely you know, challenging, but I think in a good way, is that we have three biological children. And then in California, we're going through the process of adoption. Now, we were at the early stages of that process when the opportunity in Seattle came about as well. And we had to walk through that time. Now, it was six months that the church in Seattle waited, but they were willing to wait. And I am so glad we adopted. And, and I just encourage anyone that it's not for everybody, but when you look at, just take our foster care system, and if more families stepped up in our country, we wouldn't have any kids in foster care. And then, of course, there's needs overseas as well. But uh, I, it was something for years um, I've been thinking about, my wife, we've been talking about, praying about. And we just sense this is the time, but on paper, it didn't look good because it's like, well, how are we going to wait six months? And then the adoption would go through. And then our whole family is moving as we're starting this new time together as a family of six. And I don't know what the stress scores look like with all that much transition, yeah. but, but ultimately, uh, you know, God provided and I'm so glad we adopted and, I love my son. I love all our kids so much. But there were days and there's times and when you are walking by faith or if you're dreaming big and there's those moments where it feels like I'm not only out on a limb, but I'm out on the edge of the limb. And there's those nights where you look at each other if you're married or you, you're thinking to yourself, like, is this too much? Like, are we crazy? Like, are we really on the right path? But you, being honest about that's okay. And then as you continue to to listen or pray, there's that reassurance. It's like, no, keep going. This is clear. Keep going. And mm-hmm. uh, that that voice, that still small voice, God, I believe, communicates to our minds, in our thinking, to our hearts. And that reassurance is uh, there's just nothing that beats it. Uh, that reassurance that, yep, this this is the right path. Keep going on it. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you. Um... I, I, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time and I I was going to ask you about your books. I don't think we're going to have time to get into them, but you have, you have a book called Rooted in Grace uh, and another one called A New Season. I'll put links to those in the show notes. Um, 
it's funny that it's a new season because I've been thinking about seasons lately, like the seasons of our lives and the seasons of our year. And, you know, there are certain times when we're really kind of grinding it out. And there are other times when, when it's a little more laid back and we're coasting. So mm. I, I, I found it interesting to see that you, that was the title of your book. Um, but before we go, I want to do this little pop quiz I've been doing with all my guests for the last, I don't know, 10 episodes or so, if you're okay with it. Um, it's three questions. It'll be pretty quick. Uh, the, the first one is complete this sentence. The word no actually means what? The word no means it's time to look for the better opportunity. And I think it's time to get on your knees too. I like that. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Uh, number two, um, right now, uh, first thing that comes to mind, and it could be a, a book title, a film title, a song, a quote, a lyric, anything. What is it and why? Well, when you were thinking about, uh, you just mentioned the theme, no. And, uh, you know, the first movie that caught my mind and heart was, was Rocky, uh, the original, and he was such an underdog. And that was one that, uh, just touched me deeply as a kid. Cause star Wars came out at the same time and everyone was talking about star Wars. And I was like, I like this Rocky story. And, uh, it, it he had a lot of people, he kind of took a path that um, now I know as you go forward with the Rocky movies, it, it can get a little sappy, but for that first one, for me, it was like, here's an authentic everyday guy that people were kind of putting down or doubting. And yet he gave it his all didn't win, but went the distance. And um, I don't know that, that uh, that's the movie was on the themes of nose that, that came into my mind as you started asking that question. And um I think there were a lot of themes in there that maybe what I was going through in life at that time with my parents' divorce, uh, just, it was like, okay, there, there's going to be hope. And, um, this isn't the end of the story. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, not strange that you picked that because I often, and I may have even said it on this show, I often think of my approach to my career as the Rocky Balboa approach. I just, I just take, keep taking hits and go the distance <laughs> and eventually you get your shot at the title. I, I've said that a lot. I don't know if I've said it here. I probably said it 50 times and don't realize it, but, um, right. and, I, and I also just posted a picture on Instagram the other day and I, and I said, there is no tomorrow, you know, Apollo Creed with, nice. from the beach scene. So I, I right. love that movie. And the, the first one in particular was amazing. It, I own it's it. great. It's great to have an unbelievably outstanding Adrian in our lives too. I'm so thankful for my wife, Lori. And, oh yeah. In raw eggs. I've never chugged those. I don't know. Did you actually I have. do that? Oh yeah, yeah, man. I did that in high school. I, I used to put them in a blender. And, and, Sweet. And, and <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know what it really did for me. I never could put yeah. any weight on, but I I was trying. Yeah. I would put on, you know, put like five or six of them in a blender raw, just and just That's chug right. them. That's funny. Um, those eggs, and, those eggs go right to your biceps. I hear. Oh yeah. No, they didn't go to mine. I don't know where they went. <laughs> um, but the last one I have for you is if you could give your younger self advice, what age would you choose to intervene and what would the advice be? Wow. That's a deep question. And no one's asked me that before. I would say, don't take yourself too seriously 
and probably reassurance with God's love. I would say, you know, with my kids, I feel like I'm trying to take pressure off them and then to see them anchored in God's love. Every time I see that, it's like, wow, I never had that. I wonder what that would have been like in, in different stages, different relationships, uh, whether it was dating or achievement, like just to have that reassurance and that grace uh, rather than some of the pressure I put on myself and, and the striving and the unnecessary intensity at different times or being too hard on myself, like that would have been a breath of fresh air. Hmm. I, re- I identify with that. And I, uh, and I think about my kids yeah. and this whole generation of kids, there's a ton of pressure as we've gotten into modern society. There's a ton of pressure. You talk about sports, you know, I've had, I had a friend of mine who's a pro golfer, uh, Ollie Dunn. We were, we, we riffed about that, about, you know, kids with sports and mm. it, it's, it's more than it was when we were young. I think there's a lot put on them in every area of our lives and of the kids' lives. So that's, that's nice to hear. Uh, Jesse, I, I can't thank you enough for sitting down with me. Really insightful, uh, really, really deep. And um, I just appreciate it. And you're very honest and open about your beliefs and, uh, and courageous. And uh, I, I really love having you on here. Thank You're you. really easy to talk with. I enjoy it. If you lived in Seattle, we'd get together more often. But uh, I appreciate your podcast. I love the theme of the no's that we hit. And then how do we sort walk through those? And uh, also, thanks for taking a risk. You know, you're talking to someone that, you know, faith is a big part of my life and that got into the podcast a lot today. But thanks for letting me just be authentic and entering into that part, too. And uh, yeah, appreciate you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing and, uh, and sitting down with us. Excellent. Keep up the good work. Okay. I am a believer after listening to that. Um, I can't thank Jesse enough for sharing his story and his insights among many lessons. Here are three that I'd like to point out. One, right at the beginning, he says, sometimes the greatest blessings and experiences in life are the things that you didn't plan or never saw coming. And, and that is the big one, in my opinion, the biggest one in this conversation. You don't know everything. You think you do, but you can't see it all from where you're sitting right now. So as much as I talk about grinding and work ethic, sometimes you got to just sit back and take your hands off the wheel and trust that things are going to work out. That's faith. Two, when that alignment from heaven, other people, and doing what you're made to do your heart can feel the healing, and that is when you're healthy and persevering. So that, that was a quote from Jesse, which reminds me of a former guest, Heidi Dean, who said she follows the green lights. And the whole thing is sometimes the universe is telling you where you're needed, but you're too focused on where you think you're supposed to be to heed the call. Number three, if I could tell the younger version of myself something, it would be to not take myself too seriously. Now, I've been going through this lately. I'm proud of what I've been doing uh, with this podcast, with writing, with my acting, but it's a lot of work. And sometimes I find myself gritting my teeth way too much. Anything worthwhile is going to require a lot of work, but it's not worth it if you're not finding joy. So don't take yourself or what you're doing too, too seriously. All right. Thank you so much for joining. 
If you found this inspiring or entertaining or educational, please tell people about it in whatever way is easiest for you. Just get the word out so others can benefit too. If you've yet to rate us on iTunes, please do so. And if you got a lot from Jesse, go check out these past conversations. Uh, John Gordon, Kathy Heller, Natalie Kogan. All three of those I think would resonate with you if you like this one. Next Friday, my cousin, singer, songwriter, educator, behavioral expert, Artie Tobiah joins us. Tons of insight. He is the one who told me when I was still in college, unsure if I should really pursue acting. I thought I was delusional. He said, try it for three years. If you get nowhere, you can always go get a real job. Uh, You've got to hear him. He's been plugging away with his music, and now he's got an album that's rising up the charts. It's so exciting for me to see. For now, go take your week by storm, and we'll see you next Friday. 